Welcome to the Beyond High Performance Podcast, featuring content and conversations from me, Jason Jaggard, along with our elite coaches at Novus Global, their high-performing clients, and the faculty at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. On this podcast, you'll hear some of the world's best executive coaches and high-performing leaders, artists, and athletes discuss how they continue to go beyond high performance in their lives and businesses. When I started to be able to feel my feelings well and hold what was broken about the world and what was beautiful about the world at the same time, I started to really get good at what I did. And it wasn't because I ignored the pain of things. It was because I was honest about that pain and had the courage to try to work through it with people. Today's episode is from the Meta Performance Show, where I sit down with high performers who continually aspire to go beyond high performance. In this episode, I'm joined by the head of Novus Global Sport, Dan Lefelar. Say hello. Hey, everybody. <laughs> and we sit down with baseball legend R.A. Dickey. R.A. Dickey is one of the best baseball pitchers of all time. His journey of going from the minors to the majors, back to the minors, and back to the majors to win the Cy Young Award, the award given to the best pitcher in the major leagues that year, is going to really inspire you, Dan. It was a fun conversation, wasn't it? It's one of the best conversations I've been in in a long time. Uh, so much fun. His book, Wherever I End Up, which I highly recommend, is available wherever books are sold. We hope you enjoy the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only R.A. Dickey. Thanks for being on the show with me and Dan today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, we're, we're happy you're here. And R.A., you and I met in Tennessee a couple weeks ago. I got to meet you and your wife, and that was a fantastic experience. Got to hear a little bit about your story. And I was like, oh, my God, like we have to have you on this podcast. And I came back, yeah. and I I told Dan, who's the head of you know Novus Global Sport for us, and I was like, yeah, I got to hang out with R.A. Dickey. And he was like really excited about that. And I was like, yeah. And, and R.A. like agreed to be on the on the podcast show. And Dan was like so nice about it. Like he wasn't going to force his way into the conversation. <laughs> But I could like see like the twinkle in his eye. And, and, Come on. <laughs> and, and not only a twinkle, but also kind of like, you need me for this conversation. Yeah, and I was, you might. Uh, you might. And I was like, you know what? That's probably true. <laughs> so Dan Leffelar is joining us as well, the head of Novus Global Sport. We're, we are so honored to talk to you. And as a way of framing this conversation, RA, a lot of people who already know who you are, and that's most people, there's things they know and then there's things they don't know. And so we'll get to the thing that made you a name what I'm really excited for is hearing the story and the crucible that you went through to become a name. So maybe we start not at the beginning, but maybe we start with your journey to the majors and not to give away too much, but your journey to the majors for the first time. What was the process for you like entering in that pantheon of athletes where you're one of the best in the world because you're simply in the major leagues for baseball? Well, when I, when I first came out of UT, you know, I had my collegiate experience and I had an Olympic experience, but this was no, nothing really can, pre can prepare you for being paid to play. That's a whole different animal. Like if I failed at a game in college, you know, I still went to class and didn't think much of it. But when you fail as a professional, you think a little bit differently. I mean, that's part of the trap of holding you back. It's one of the things that keeps you from being freed up to really perform well. For me, it was, and it took me a while to kind of get beyond that and, you know, not have such a macro vision and get more, much, much more of a micro vision of what I needed to do to be successful. I'm curious about two things, two questions right away. One is um, what were some of the things that helped you shift from that macro kind of being overwhelmed? Oh, I played a bad game and we all know athletes conversations with themselves tend to be pretty, pretty negative if that's going on. And what helped you get to that micro level? Failure. I mean, that's really the only thing that you, failure plus you know, that, that plus is a big deal. I mean, it was failure plus. It just wasn't failure with, and then just falling, free falling with no support. You know, I failed mm -hmm. multiple times 
and have people around me love me well in the moment of my failures to uh, to help help me see even off the field what I needed to do better that would make me a better pitcher yeah. and on the thing on the field yeah. in particular I had a lot of people who who really poured into me in a way that was loving and caring and if it weren't for kind of that team of people it it would have been really really difficult to uh, get to where I ultimately got but yeah you know my first day in in the major leagues my like my first day in the camp I mean out of I was drafted in the, yeah. the first round and of course, you know, they discovered I didn't have an owner collateral ligament in my elbow. And so my, my sign of bonus got dropped from a million dollars, basically down to $75,000. And so I kind of had to overcome that label as well. And that was part of that macro kind of, you know, I'm not, I'm damaged goods and, you know, am I ever going to make it? I'll always have this label on my back as the guy that's going to eventually break down because he doesn't have a UCL. And, you know, that took some time to get over. And ultimately, my first day in the big leagues was in 2001 as a conventional pitcher. And so that journey, how much time uh, in terms of like moving from that kind of macro experience, but getting into the micro, getting into the details, yeah, you know, building that confidence, how long did that take you? Wow. I mean, I came into the league as a professional. Now, when I say a professional, I don't mean the major leagues. I mean, the minor leagues, my first stint out of college, when I got drafted by the Texas Rangers was to go to Port Charlotte, Florida and, and single a ball and start learning my craft in a new way. And from that moment, it took me from 1996, basically to 2001 to get my first cup of coffee in the big leagues. So that's a five year grind there to do that. But as far as the not being so consumed with that, the superfluous stuff that was around me and distracting me from yeah. really being who I could be, that that didn't really occur yeah. for me until I was drafted in 96. I'd probably say I really started to understand that in 2007. So it yeah, was, it was wow. a long time. It, it took me a long time. Yeah. And RA, is that, and it took that amount of time, whether it was long or not, it took that amount of time with that support. How long do you think it would have taken had you not have had that support? Well, I really didn't have it early. You know, I mean, partially because of my story of origin, that was my own fault. You know, I, I didn't want people pouring into me. I wanted to be able to do it on my own. I mean, some of it was in retrospect coming to the realization that I, you know, I needed help. I needed people like I'd been, I'd been, I'd been the guy for a long time, right? Like I'd been a first round pick. Yeah. I've been a, an Olympic starter. I'd been a high school all American, a collegiate yeah. all American, like all that cry. And then, you know, all of a sudden you're just one, you're just one of the, you know, anybody in that clubhouse could be what you were, you know, I mean, and so you had to get beyond that as well. And I, I wanted to still be the big man on campus and my ego needed to be chiseled away. And I needed to really embrace a whole new frame of mind and mentality. If I was ever going to have a sustained period in the major leagues, with the best in the world. I mean, that took 11 years for me to figure that out. There's so much wisdom yeah. that you're just kind of saying, and I don't mean like dropping bombs, but just, I, I see the wisdom of you growing in wisdom through your story. Because I think that's rare, first of all. And so two people who are at the top of their game, whether they're athletes or artists or entertainers or leaders or whoever, like people, anyone's listening to this who's had some degree of success, walk us through that process. Because some people fail, they never ask for help. So do you remember like the first time that you reached out or, what was that? Paint us a picture of what that looked like right in the beginning of reach, learning to reach out. It took me seeing somebody that was already there do it. You know, uh, I was observant. Hmm. You know, that's, I felt like that was one of the gifts I'd been given was that I was a real curious person by nature. Now, I didn't always do with that curiosity what I should. You know, it didn't manifest in, in, in growth all the time, right? <laughs> like, 
but at the same time, it was in me to be curious about things. And so when I was in, I guess, as a conventional pitcher, I got a glimpse of it in about 2000. I've been four years in just grinding it out, trying to survive, trying to, you know, ink up the ladder from single A to double A, back to single yeah. A to double A to triple A, back to double A to triple A. Yeah, I mean, that, that whole cycle couldn't break through, couldn't break through. And I was in spring training and I tell this story often. I went to a spring training and, and I was watching this guy take ground balls at third base and he was, you know, he didn't need to be out there. It was the middle of the day. He was the only guy out there. He had a coach hitting to him, hitting to him all the time, helping him with backhands. The guy ended up being Cal Ripken Jr. And he had he had moved positions from shortstop to third base and and he just wanted somebody to help him with it. And I thought to myself, Well, if that guy if that guy can can be open to people pouring <laughs> into him and not having all the answers, then surely I can. That was a moment for me. You know, I think, I think along the way, I've had a, a bunch of different stepping yeah. stones, you know, if you will, at least that's, I call them memory stones, but you know, these memories of, of when these certain things happen and you click and not every, not every memory translates into the, the euphoria of, you know, having unlimited success, but all of them added up mm -hmm. together to help make me who I was ultimately. I'm curious. So 2004 season, you start off with a great record four and one you're doing really really well and then something shifts in that moment because I, I and we've worked with lots of athletes who have had seasons that have gone well and the back half doesn't go well your mentality during that process was it can you walk me through a little bit of yeah. that and how that affected you because uh, that was a big year that was a big year so my first cup of coffee was a one and then it, it took me a good two more years of going down the minors after that 32 day stint to get back to the major leagues yeah. in any significant way. And so when I got up there, I felt really good about where I was mechanically. And, and the one thing that, you know, I think is a constant, at least in my profession, is you have to, you're not going to have any even modicum of success without, you know, having a, a talent, right? You can't not have talent yeah. and be so I was surviving on my talent and and that's it like that alone was kind of what I relied on and it was going it was clicking you know I mean like it had many many times before where you'd get on a run you'd have a momentum you'd get in what they call the zone or whatever you know and so for about a month and a half there at the beginning of that 04 season I've gotten called up and done well with my opportunities and I felt really good and really in a groove I, I'll never forget I threw eight and two-thirds innings on ESPN and the Sunday night baseball, all yep. my family was watching against Tim Wakefield, uh, ironically enough. And um, the Red Sox were in town with a really, really good team. And, you know, I held them to one run. And if I was driving home after the game, I thought to myself, I think I'm here. Like, I think I've arrived. Huh. Right. Like my ego wanted to kind of yeah. send me down that road of. You know, you can be satisfied. Yeah. You know, you 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 can rest for a moment. Interesting, right? Yeah. And I I really re yep. you know yeah. in reflection, I really remember that being a moment where, you know, I was I was captured uh, for the negative. You know, like um, I think I rested yeah. on the previous two or three games. Next thing you know, a month goes by from that game, and I don't think I got out of the fifth inning for that next month. And I was just trying to back to square yeah. one. And so that was a big learning experience yeah. for me. You know, I, I might have battled an injury in there a little bit, trying to pitch with some pain and all that. But for the most part, I think that was it. You made an interesting statement a few minutes ago where you said that you were riding on talent alone. Yeah. And I, I think when people think about certainly sport, but like in any kind of endeavor where you're going, and I'm going to ask a question that probably is obvious to you, but may not be obvious to everyone who's listening. 
riding on talent alone, well, RA, like what else is there? <laughs> you know, well, that's a good question. A lot of people probably don't understand how much more there is. I, I you know, presently I, I work with the varsity high school pitchers at my, my kids school. And like, if you asked every one of them, that's what they would say, you know, Hey, if you're good enough, you're going to be good enough. Right. Like with yeah. what you can do without any real thought into the intangibles that, that people need to possess to be the best at what they do. And they ride that. And I think one of the blessings and the curse in that is that the ones that really are talented ride that out until they break. And then you've got to figure it out. So there's like three different careers in there. You know, there's the career that you live with originally where you're just a talent machine and you can do it. And then you learn with this other part. And then hopefully, hopefully you get a shot to implement both of them together in that last third. And I was really fortunate that I got the last third, you know, and for the last third for me was the last 10 years of my career when I was in the major leagues. My high school, college, amateur, first part of my professional career, that was my, ta- those were, hey, I'm, I'm talented, I'm going to out-talent you. And then the middle third was, man, I'm getting, I'm getting crushed. What in the heck is going on? I need to learn about this. I need to learn about that. What's that guy doing this? Who's that? Why can't I learn from him? Let me, do I need a better pickoff move? Do I need to fill my position better? But that was the third that saved my life as a professional. Wow. And what would you say, you know, you're using learning little bits and pieces of the game, those little micro improvements that over time Mm -hmm. compound. If you were to describe what those intangible and I'm excited to get into the next part of the story that Dan's taking us towards in terms of as your game precipitously drops a little bit, if you can have a little bit of precipitous in the same sentence. You know, RA, like what, what are those invisible, intangible things you were developing during that second, third? A lot of it is how to t- receive criticism, receive coaching. I think that's a big mm-hmm. deal. Apt, let's call it aptitude. Mm-hmm. So aptitude is mm-hmm. one. How focused are you on trying to perfect your craft like how serious are you about that mentality that's another like Hmm. you know mentality aptitude work ethic obviously and i felt like that was something that that was a gift for me early you know work ethic was big for me also believe it or not the biggest intangible for me and the thing that really helped me turn the corner professionally was surrender um, how do I surrender to a whole different philosophy around that was antithetical to things that I previously held real tightly to? That was a risk. Yeah. It was it had big dividends in the end, but it was scary, man. I mean, that surrender was very scary. And as you're talking about that, I get goosebumps because <laughs> there's so many young athletes that I talk to who, you know, they're cruising on their talent. They've had success. The ego's there. And, and the thought of questioning that is almost like questioning their ability to perform in the future. It's almost like we're going to erode the very foundations that success has come through that swagger, that confidence. Yeah. What can you talk, talk to me a little bit about what it was like to surrender? Like how, what, what did that feel like for you? Was it an on, was it a moment? Was it an ongoing process? It was not a moment. It was a process. And I'm sure if you've worked yeah. with any high performing people, then you understand that eventually they get to a place hopefully where they really have to trust their process and that's the start of kind of the micro focus for me was how can i take my outings and reduce them to 112 or 115 singular commitments like how can i do that over the course of the game how can i discipline myself to do that how can i practice that how can i think about that how can i 
share that? How can I hope for that? How can I do, how can I surrender to that? Right. Like all those things that you grind through. That's golden. You, you expanded yeah. on that a little bit when we were together in, in Tennessee. Could you please tell Dan and our audience about your framework for those 112, like where did that, you know, how, how does that work? Where does that, how does that show up? Cause I think the, the application to leaders is huge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, uh, and this came, this came through a lot of work off the field. Like this was not, you talk about all the things that kind of make you who you are ultimately. Well, one of the things was, you know, I, I needed help personally too. Like I needed to know how to do relationship better and communicate better and trust people more. And, and so part of my surrender was finding a counselor I could trust, a therapist uh, or psychologist. Uh, you know, we had access, the, the modalities that we had at our fingertips, there was no excuse for us, <laughs> but you had to take the step. I mean, the excuse was you're too good for it. You don't have time for it. You're not going to make time for it. Yeah. You're, you're lazy. You know it all, like all those things are enemies to your development. And so off the field, I was learning kind of the reduction of my life to a moment by moment living um, discipline. Uh, and I just thought, well, yeah. well that gone, man, that, that's how I need to perform like that. I need to, I need to take that and I need to apply that to my craft as a pitcher. And so I just started to, you know, if, if I'm a starter in a perfect game or a complete game, I'm throwing between hundred and 115 games. I, how can I take my focus off? Okay. I want to throw seven innings, three runs, six strikeouts, one, walk, two. How can I reduce that to living the next 30 seconds? Well, how do I do that? Yes. How do I live the next 30 seconds? Well, and how do I do that throughout the day? You know, 750 times or however, wh whatever the algorithm is for adding up to a complete day. And then when I lay my head on my pillow at night, I can be satisfied with, with whatever outcome there was. And that helped free me up for the next outing. And so no matter what happened in that outing, if my focus was, was micro to down to, okay, ball one, what's next? That pitch is gone. This pitch is here. That's all I have control over. How can I execute that pitch to the fullest of its capacity? Do that 110 times. And ultimately, like my Cy Young year and my All-Star year, like all the, like that's what it was. It was, it was how do I reduce those moments down to micro moments for me? So, Ari, this, this is fascinating for me to listen to because for a couple of different reasons. One is I, I've heard this before. When I'm talking to younger athletes, I'm curious what your thoughts about this. There tends to be an in like a lack of patience in that process. Like I, you know, I, I, I'm trying to break it down and I'm doing it, but it's just not, it's how long did it take in your mind to go from breaking the commitments down to mastery of them? You know, I think that last word was, is the trap word. Well, I never thought about, I mean, as good as I ever was, I was never a master of it in my mind. Like I, I would always be hungry. Like there was always something to learn. Right. And if you've mastered something, there's nothing more you can do. Right. Like in my mind. So at least yeah. my definition of it. And so I would always take myself and even Phil Necro, who was rest in peace. He was one of my greatest friends and most helpful people in my journey. He won over 300 games in the major leaguers, he, major league, and he's a hall of famer. And he was never satisfied with where he was or what he was doing. And he tried to impart that to me. So I think one of the things for me was always craving, like I really, I craved to learn more about my craft. I was never satisfied with that. I was as good of a game as I ever had, whether it was like I went through a stretch where, you know, I had back to back complete game one hitters. You know, people were pouring in the park thinking the next 
outing was going to be a one hitter. And I was and asking me questions like, how do you master knuckleball this and that? And I would always have to say the same thing. Like, you know, if I pitch well, I don't, I don't remember, right? I, I'm so engrossed in the moment of what I'm doing. I don't remember, right? And, and the, the result is, is the picture that you painted with all those micro moments. Um, that's how I tried to play out the last third of my career. It's so fun listening to you describe this. And, and it sounds like what you're saying, a theme is the moment I thought I arrived is the moment I, I was not where I needed to be. It's, it's this progressive commitment to constantly growing and learning and, and curiosity and development that really created those, those, that tenure at the end, at last half of your, your career. Yeah, I would say, I, th I think, you know, you, you guys made a good point early. There is a balance, right? There is a balance in knowing who you are mm. and being good and knowing that you have something to give that's valuable and good and consistent and um, helpful. Like being confident in that is great, but how do you hold that confidence and swagger with the humility that comes with yeah. how to always yeah. crave better. You know, there's this Japanese term that I love that Ichiro Suzuki, who I played with in the Seattle Mariners, he he kind of shared it with me. And I, I had a calligrapher kind of draw up a picture that hangs above my office. And I, I see it almost every day. And it's the term is Kaizen. And it means kind of this, this unending pursuit to improve is basically, it's much more than a mm. word. It's, it's like a, it's a, it's a notion. It's a it's a life philosophy. It's a mantra. It's not just a, a word to them. So, and when I say them, I mean the Japanese culture came up with it, and it's an incredible word. And it's and that's what I mean. How do you hold both of those? How do you hold? Hey, man, I am really good. I'm going to take this ball and I'm going to stick it right up your ass. And then you also have, you know, <laughs> but I also have a lot to learn. And what can I learn from that? When you felt yourself shifting, was there a piece of feedback or maybe something that you had heard early in your career that you're like, I don't need that? Maybe even specific to your game that after kind of that transition happened, you're like, man, that's exactly it flipped on you. Was it was there any sort of specific thing like that you can remember or maybe even a person who was giving you feedback earlier on that you, you really realized was was much more gold than you had seen in the first uh, the first time you heard it? You know, that's a great question. I, you know, I don't think that I, I can remember any epiphany that I had about something somebody said way back when. I really tried to, you know, one thing that I did that I, I really felt was valuable for me, and this is cool too, because I'm sure there's a lot of overlap here with in the professional world corporately, but, you know, you, you have a lot of bosses. Like I, I had a lot of bosses, I had a lot of managers, I had a lot of pitching coaches, and not everything they say is golden, but you know there there is there is a way for you to receive that. I had what I called a you know a mind vault where I would I would take something and I would I might not be using and I would even tell the pitching coach, hey man, you know I hear you and I'm going to file that away in case I need it. But right now I know that this is what I need to do, hmm. right? And a lot of times as a knuckleball pitcher, I would Charlie Huff told me a great he had a great the very first thing he ever told me, he said, all right. And Charlie Huff was a longtime knuckleball pitcher for a, a bunch of teams. And I, I turned to him a lot for help. He said, you got to be your own best coach because the people huh. that you are going to be seeking counsel from, they're not going to know how to throw a knuckleball. There's only been like 35 knuckleballers in the history of baseball in 125 years. So, I mean, you're not, there's not a lot of people <laughs> who can teach that pitch. So you're going to have to learn to be your own best coach. And so I would take things that people said to me when I was a conventional pitcher before I 
yep. committed to being a full-time knuckleballer and I'd followed away and I leaned on some of that stuff later in my career. Sure. But I didn't ever dismiss it. You know, I, I always thought that it was important. I may not have acted like it, but I, I always heard it. That's actually a great transition because this, this is the thing that just blows me away about you. There's so many things I really respect and getting to know your story and your authenticity. Uh, start talking to Dan about like the, the conversation on the plane, you know, as your fastball started to decrease speed. Cause, because again, again, for people who aren't familiar with your story, yeah. it needs to be turned to a movie or something. You're, 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 you're at the, you're at the top of your game and then things start to slow down and then what? Well, and Ari, I want to say one thing as you pivot into this, cause this is, this to me is, I think what, what made me most excited to, to have some time with you is I talked to a lot of guys whose careers they've had their day in the sun. They get sent down to the minors and whatever league they're in, they conclude it's over. They pack their bags and they're, they're just shutting it down. And your story isn't like that. And I, I want to get into why it's not like that. So, Sure. Of course, I was drafted as a conventional pitcher where I threw, you know, mid-90s fastball and had an arsenal of pitches that was pretty good. Like we talked about earlier, you know, you're talented, so you you use that talent the best you know how. And and my talent was I threw hard and uh, I had a couple off-speed pitches, secondary pitches that were good. Well, I didn't necessarily know how to pitch to professional hitters, so that took some time to learn how to trust the catcher. And and as I was mm -hmm. getting up there to 01, for whatever reason, just through general attrition or, or you know, your, your arm only has so many lightning bolts in it before it peters out. And my arm started to just kind of atrophy, I guess. And yeah. my 95 mile an hour fastball, you know, every spring training, I'd come back year after year, go from like 95 to 93 to 91 to 89 to 88 until finally I was just scraping by on moxie and guts and whatever I could do to survive. And Buck mm -hmm. Showalter was the manager at the time and, and Oral Hershiser was my pitching coach. And they had seen me throw a knuckleball on the side, just messing around. It was something my grandfather had taught me that I always kind of messed around with. And so, you know, they saw me just messing around with it on the side and Oral Hershiser pulled me aside and said, Hey, I know you don't think you need that right now because you're a conventional pitcher. It's all you ever known, but there may be a chance for you to go to that full time, like a Tim Wakefield or a Phil Necro or a Charlie Huff and be real valuable. And I just kind of filed it away. Yeah. But I thought that's, that's not for me. <laughs> Real quick, yeah, sorry, real quick. Just explain to some of our audience what a knuckleball is. Every pitch that you see on TV spins. And the reason that it spins is that the pitcher is imparting a certain type of spin on that baseball to manipulate the break. For instance, if he, he, a right-handed hitter wants to throw a curveball, he gets top spin on it. So it'll go from a 12 o'clock to a 6 o'clock, and it'll mm -hmm. deceive the hitter. He'll swing and miss. Same with every pitch that a conventional pitcher throws. Well, that's every pitcher in the major leagues. Because right now there are no knuckleballers in the in the major leagues. Mm -hmm. And knuckleball is antithetical to that in that you're trying to completely reduce the spin to a quarter of a rotation from the time it leaves my hand wow. to the time it gets to the catcher's mat, a quarter rotation. You got to kind of try to feel that. And that means that you could like read the writing on the ball. Um, and so you're trying to reduce spin so that the air, the friction of the seams against the humidity, I mean, all these little incredible poetic and spiritual, you know, metaphorical things occur when a, <laughs> when a, when a good knuckleball is thrown, you know, you have to you talk about, you talk about surrender. I had to learn that like when I let the ball go, wow. I, I was powerless to what it was going to do. Cause one time it might go down and away. Another time it might go up and in and, you know, I, but the beauty is on a knuckleball, if you don't know where it's going, the hitter surely doesn't know where it's going. And so you can, <laughs> you can have a lot of success with that. Right. 
So I just had to figure out how to throw it for strikes. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the difference between pitching regularly and pitching a knuckleball is the difference between skating, <laughs> figure skating, and skating for hockey. Like they're not even in the same universe. Yeah, they're not. That that the they share they share a couple of planets in that you have to have a consistent mechanic, right? Like you have to yeah. to be able to produce a knuckleball that doesn't spin, just like a conventional pitcher can command the pitches that he throws to the outside corner. And you're talking about, you know, an 18 inch plate, you're having to hit the two inches on either corner pretty consistently. And how do you produce a mechanic that can do that? Well, you had to be even more perfect with a knuckleball mechanic, because if you, if you put too much spin on that knuckleball, because it's not coming in at a, at a velocity of any real significance, it turns into a, a batting practice fastball. And those things go out so fast, you can barely see them, you know? I mean, so I had to unlearn, what I had learned and relearn huh. a good mechanic that I could produce a good knuckleball with. And so, you know, in 05, midway through, sure enough, I couldn't top 87 miles an hour. And we're th I was throwing, yeah. I, I tell this story where I was, the moment that I knew, I threw a fastball away to a guy named Vladimir Guerrero. His son is playing for the Blue Jays now, but I played against his dad. And he hit a ball that I thought was a line drive right back to me. And by the time I got my glove up, I'm not kidding you. By the time I got my glove up, uh, it was ricocheting off the wall behind me. And I thought, wow, this is getting dangerous. You know, like I'm just not, I don't have the, the talent. I don't have the talent that I once had. So if I want to stay here and keep chasing the dream of being a professional baseball player, I got to come up with something different. And this is where somebody loved me well. They saw that, they, they pulled me in the office, Oral Hershiser and Buck Walter, right after that game. And they said, listen, bud, like we like you, you've got a lot of intangibles, we love your work ethic, you know, you, you have a lot of things we really covet, but what you're doing out there right now just isn't gonna cut it. And it was a real honest conversation. And thankfully I was in a place where I could receive that. And they didn't release me, they didn't fire me. They didn't say, you stink, go home. You're just a pawn on a chessboard. Yeah. We don't care about you anymore. And, and, and you are to some degree, but they had some latitude for me. And I saw it as love for me, you know, like they, were, they really cared about me. I mean, a genuine kind of uh, caring. And they said, we want you to become a full-time knuckleballer. Now, if you choose not to do that, then we probably will release you. But we want you to have the opportunity to go down, back down to the minor leagues, and try to figure out how to be a major league knuckleball pitcher. And so that's what I did midway through 2005. Well, hold on. <laughs> and and it was, so that's what I did. Uh, was that a hard like conversation? That. Did you have to think about it? Like, did, did, like what was the deliberation? What was it like the first day going back in the minor suiting up? Like, talk to us about that. Was there a grief that came over you in that process? There was some sadness to that, but I had already experienced that because that was the climax, right? That was the climax. You, uh -huh. I was getting hit around pretty good, and I kind of smelled. You'd been around. I'd been around long enough to kind of smell the writing on the wall. There were guys that were doing really, really well in the minor leagues that threw 105 miles an hour. You know, I mean, you just you know. And the reason that I I was on that team to begin with was because Buck Showalter knew he could trust me. Like he called me to the front of the plane when he told me that he made the I made the team. He said, "Look, I know you don't have the best stuff. That's not why you're on the team." And I was the 12th man on a 12 man staff that year. And he said, "You're on this team because." Of, you can field your position. You can hold runners well. I can trust you when I put on a bunt play. You're going to throw strikes. You may get hit around, but I can trust that if you get beat, it's going to be because you got beat, not because you're walking people or you can't, you know, like. And so that that was mm -hmm. great. 
but that didn't last very long because ultimately at that level, you have to perform or you're out. That's just the way it is, right? Like that's the nature of the beast. And so, yeah, I grieved it as I was going. I mean, every poor outing I had would be, you know, like a stab in the heart, knowing that I would never get that 95 mile an hour fastball back and knowing that, you know, unless I was perfect and I mean perfect, that I was probably going to get hit around. And so there was a lot of anxiety that came with that, that I had to fight back and a lot of apprehension about really being, when I did get my number called out of the bullpen, really being fully committed to what I was doing because I had fear about it. And there were all a lot of demons that you battle in in those spots. So I had kind of done some of that already before the time that he called me in the office. But when he called me in the office, it was almost refreshing. When When they said, look, we want you to go do this thing, because we believe in you. It was like a shot in the arm. So like in retrospect, I saw it as incredible leadership. Instead of dismissing me, they saw that I had something maybe that could be helpful and they helped to cultivate that, right? They saw something in me at a time when I really didn't see it in myself. Now that was exciting. Like that was new and fresh and it was a new start. They're like, we don't care about what you've done. We know this is new. It's going to take time. We want to give you, and they said these words, they said, we want to give you room to fail because you're going to fail at this because it's so new and so hard to do, which is why you don't see any knuckleballers up there is because it's, it's so difficult of a thing to do. And they realized that. So when I went down there, it was with that mission to try to be the best knuckleball pitcher that I could possibly be. And that was intentional. You were like, is it the best knuckleball pitcher I could possibly be? Or was it what you became, which is one of the best knuckleball pitchers ever? Well, I think, I think it was just, you know, I kind of had that it's time to, you know, I had, I, I am the product of a lot of, a lot of coaches. Like I played football in high school, like a lot of coaches that said, you got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you get, you know, you can't feel pain and you can't like, I, I'm the product of a lot of that stuff. And I felt like speaking to that point, cause I think it's important. And I, I don't want to go further without speaking into this. Cause I think it's a real flaw and that style of coaching mm-hmm. When I started to be able to feel my feelings well and hold what was broken about the world and what was beautiful about the world at the same time, mm-hmm. I started to really get good at what I did. Um, and mm-hmm. it wasn't because I ignored the pain of things. It was because I was honest about that pain and, and had the courage yeah. to try to work through it with people. Now, if I didn't do that, if I didn't have that and I didn't have people around me to do that with, I would not have been a Cy Young Award winner. I would not have. You wouldn't be talking to me on a podcast about a successful career. You would have, who knows? I don't know, but I need to say that because I think it's very, very important. And so I went down there with that mentality though. I went down there with like, I'm going to be the best, you know, I'm going to outwork it, outwork everybody. Right. And so, and I did, I I worked my butt off as hard as I knew how to work. But the problem was I didn't know what the hell I was doing. You know, I mean, I had, I had a good knuckleball, but, but I didn't have anybody teaching me the right mechanic or the right grip or teaching me the mentality or the, you know, it was hard to, to be alone in that, right? Well, I was just going to ask, in terms of timeline, just to, to help people listening, so how long were you down in the minors working on it? Question one. Question two yeah. is, was that a was it a linear process? I know it wasn't, but like, what was it like to, to be alone in that space working on it? Oh, it was the hardest thing I think I'd ever done, really. I mean, it, because I was, it was so lonely. I couldn't turn to a teammate and say, how do you hold your fastball, man? I'm having trouble with mine. Right. I couldn't turn to a teammate and say, well, what are you seeing in my mechanic that's not making me produce a good knuckleball? Nobody knows. They, like 
if I could help another conventional pitcher, just like I can help every member of that varsity pitching staff that I work with now, but nobody can really help you. And so even the pitching wow. coach is at the mercy of your success or failure. You know, he, he, he has not much to input. And so I was down there just trying to survive it, right? Like trying to get another chance. And I knew they were going to let me have room to fail. But the timeline was I went down there in 05, hoping to reinvent myself as a knuckleballer. And it wasn't until I threw a game in 2010 that I really felt felt like I had something to offer. Wow. With that pitch, five years. Did you at any point want to stop? Like, oh, like is there man. ever a, I want to throw the towel in five yeah. years? That's a long yeah, time. Man. It was a long time. It was a long time. It was, it's a, you know, it's, I, I, I equated a, um, with people to like going to med school. Like it's four years of your life before you figure out how to be a real doctor, right? Like I was a doctor of a knuckleball in it and I needed four years of trying to seek out people who knew more than I did about the pitch and failing and having success and taking baby steps and learning how to hold that. And how do I hold runners now that I'm throwing a pitch that doesn't break 75 miles an hour? And how do I, you know, I had to do all these things and knew then on top of that, you know, you have a front office around major league baseball that doesn't have a lot of confidence in that pitch, right? Managers and pitching coaches and general managers, they want things that they can count on. You can count on Steven Strasburg's 100-mile-an-hour fastball. You can count on like nobody's that. Yeah, that's right. Predictability, consistency, dependability, though trustworthiness. Those are all the, the common words you hear when you're in spring training, you know, or you're talking to the general manager yeah. about yep. him, him giving you a contract or not. You know, those are the things that they hope for. A knuckleball, by definition, Different from all yes. those words. And so you, you yeah. are, you are the opposite. <laughs> yes, it's the opposite. And so you're fighting an uphill battle, not only with yourself, because you're alone in that, huh. but you have got to go overboard on being trustworthy and being consistent and being dependable because you have to do it better and cleaner than everybody else just to get a shot because you already have this, you know, this aura of, well, he's a knuckleballer. I mean, eventually the other shoe's going to fall. Even if he has a good game here, the catcher's not going to be able to catch it. You know, it's going to be an ugly outing. You know, like you just don't have a lot of leash as a knuckleballer. So I had a lot of stuff that I had to kind of wade through in those five years to make people see, hey, this is legitimate. It's not some circus act. Like I can do this and it's a major league pitch. And I tried to do it to the degree where people had to take notice. Like that was my mindset. Yeah. And that's an interesting contrast. I want to make a comment, but then I have a question after it. It's interesting how excellence isn't just about you being good at something, but it's about other people trusting that you're good at something mm. and you can be, you can have one without the other. And actually, and actually you can have people who believe that you're good without actually being good. And sometimes that, <laughs> that's like yeah. a charlatan. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure. And that happens in leadership all the time. You know, where people, I think in baseball, well, in any kind of leadership environment, we talk a lot about being seduced by talent, you know, because just because someone's good at something doesn't mean they're good at everything else Those intangible qualities mm -hmm. and that'll get you into trouble. But the, the question RA is, so then while you're doing that, I'm just, I'm still, I'm seeing this as like a screenplay. How do you cobble together your like team of misfits to help you through that five-year period? Yeah. Who did you call? Were they excited to help you? Did you have to convince them? Like talk about that process and how you, how you reinvented yourself, not only reinventing yourself, but reinventing yourself with a thing that no one really knows how to do. Yeah, gl gladly. It's, it, it's my privilege to get to talk to you about that particular part because I really felt like that was the life-changing. And when I say life-changing, I, I mean life-changing away from baseball as well. You know, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about, you know, at the time, here I am, 
I was 32 years old with two kids. My wife had chased me around to 45 different cities and that's not hyperbole. Like yeah. we, we celebrated, you know, I think we counted last year just for fun, all the places that we, we, we moved 68 times, 68. Wow. That's a lot, a lot of times. Wow. And she with had kids. this kind of, yeah, with kids and Tacoma, Washington to Port Charlotte, Florida, like, I mean, all over the map, not to mention mm -hmm. I played in Venezuela and the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico trying to figure it out. And RA, that's, that's a part of sport, especially professional sport that I don't think most people understand the toll that that can take on a family and, a, and, and, and kids and a wife. And so I just, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I, that, that's a part of the game that people don't hear about. Yeah. I would think that it's a, like musicians, military, professional athletes. I mean, there's a group of people that kind of have to travel. It's what they've been gifted with to do. And it's, it, it makes them, yeah. they find a lot of value in it and they give, they have a gift to give away and that's how they do it. But if you don't have the right spouse in your corner, it can, it can be really hard. It can be really hard. I, one of my teammates, the first time I was in a major league camp, first thing he said to me, he said, all right, don't get married and don't have kids until you're finished with baseball. Like the, uh, that was his advice. Of course, I did not follow that advice. I had kids very quickly and got married really <laughs> quickly because I was in love with my wife, but she, uh, she was number one. So you talk about cobbling it together. She was chief cobbler. And then I turned to Charlie Huff first. And this is what was so unique. And I think there's a lot to glean from this. Charlie Huff was the first person that I reached out to when I went down in 05. I called Charlie Huff about two weeks later after I'd thrown a couple outings. My very first outing in the minor leagues with a knuckleball as a full-time knuckleballer. We had this great manager who'd been in the Vietnam War. His name was Bobby Jones. And, he, you know, it was an F-bomb every other word. And he just, he was that kind of guy, but he was a great-hearted human being. And I loved him dearly. He was great. And my first outing, I gave up 10 earned runs in four innings, walked four, had four stolen bases, and struck out one. That was my very first outing. That that would get anybody else like sent 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 out, right? But the, and the manager came to came to the came to the mound. He said, "Hey man, I'll see you in five days." You know, and it would just gave you the confidence that hey, they really they really are going to let you fail and try to figure this out. And so about two weeks later, I called Charlie Huff, got in touch with him. He was in California, and, and we talked, and he taught me a bit, little bit about my grip. But I needed I needed touch. I needed I needed to be next to somebody to grind with them and to pick their brain. I couldn't you know we didn't have this. FaceTime or anything else. It was just a conversation here or there. And yeah. then I would try to apply it in a bullpen or a practice session. It was just so hard. And so Charlie Huff was my first guy. And I pitched, I finally, I pitched well enough to make the Rangers curious again so that I got called up the last month of the season and got to go through Anaheim with the team as a knuckleballer. I got two starts the last month just so they could kind of look at my progress. And I got to, I got to work with Charlie Huff. He was there. He came out to Anaheim. We were playing the Angels and I threw 10, bullpen after bullpen after bullpen with him right there. He was so generous with his time, didn't ask for anything in return and met me at the field uh, before games would start. And we just grinded and grinded and grinded. He changed my grip. He changed a little bit about mechanic and he gave me a real gift in that. And so got a little bit better there. Then fast forward a few years after that, I came in contact with Tim Wakefield and Tim Wakefield poured into me in a real neat way. He was a knuckleballer at the time. He was the only knuckleballer left in the major leagues. Hmm. And I had watched him pitch for years and reached out to him. He was incredibly generous with his time. And the one thing I started to see was this pattern of people that wanted to bring a legitimacy to their craft and where the outside world would say, you know, that guy's kind of, he's throwing a knuckleball. That's not a real pitch. That's not, a, you know, they wanted to perpetuate their craft. Like they wanted people to carry it on because they 
saw what it could be mm. really be. And that was a real neat thing. And so after Tim, that was probably 07, 08. After 08, I ran into Phil Necro. And Phil Necro was the one who really kind of refined my mechanic. He got my hips involved in a way that I never had. I went from throwing my knuckleball from like high 60s, low 70s to really trying to throw what they call a power knuckleball. And he said, hey, you've got the arm strength to do it. You should at least do it. And so I tried it. And that's when it clicked was that year. But if I, if I would not have had those people in that order, it had to be in that order. Because yeah. I would not have understood what Phil Necro said to me late or Tim Wakefield, had I not had the foundation of what Charlie Huff had already taught me, I would not have understood it and been able to apply. Interesting. Yeah, it was really interesting. Is that serendipitous or is that, I'm, I'm thinking through for all of our listeners, whether they're in sport or not, one, certainly, who are the people who are helping you improve your game? And that's, that's, that's I think, the obvious thing to take away is are there people in your life who you're, who you're going towards to like say, hey, help me with my grip, you know, whether it's yeah. how I lead meetings or how I, how I do my art or whatever it is. For you, though, is, there, is it like you know, to God or to, to luck or to was it intentional? Did you know that these guys had different things to give you? How did that work? No. I mean, you use the word serendipity. I mean, I, I would say for me, my faith is a big part of who I am. And I really believe in divine intervention and that God has a real specific plan for me. And so I tried that, that helped, that helped me yeah. in my journey quite a bit is to lean on that spirituality. Um, and so I, I just saw it as, you know, God's plan, you know, like for me was to, to run into these guys, you know, at the time in my career that I did each time, somebody else might say it's coincidental or serendipitous or whatever, but I, I really saw it as, and that gave me that, that strengthened my faith, you know, too, yeah. is in retrospect, I got to see how that kind of grew together and weaved for me this, this incredible tapestry that I could not explain any other way. Yeah. And the thing that I like about you, like the human side of that divine equation is you showed up at your best to take advantage of whatever opportunity was in front of you. And, and I think there's a, there's a dance there, you know, probably in your faith, yeah, mind, there's yeah. a dance, there's, there's gifts and opportunities that are given to us. And then how do we show up to steward them? Agreed. Uh, but Dan, I think you're going to probably ask a question that's going to move us forward a little bit. So keep going. <laughs> no, it's good. I, I love it. Actually, what you just said reminds me, and Ari, I don't know if you've heard the quote before. I'm sure you have is luck is where opportunity and preparation intersect. Uh, or meet. Yeah, yeah. Your story is very much like that. So yeah. I'm curious, you, you uh, just kind of as an aside, because um, I've had conversations with even pitchers who, you know, they're bouncing up and down, they go down to the minors. Uh, and this this is kind of a gen generic question, but I'm curious what, what your answer would be. For a guy who, let's say he's pitched in the major leagues a little bit, he's had some success, but that confidence starts to drop, he ends up back in the minors. What, what would you tell uh, one of those guys, especially pitchers specifically, um, uh, who are in that situation, what would you, what, what would the advice or maybe the assessment that you would, you would encourage them to get? Well, I, you know, I, I think probably the first thing I'd tell them would, would be, it's okay to grieve that. Right. Like, mm -hmm. I think that's important. Like the process through the heartbreak of that. I mean, because there's no guarantee they'll ever get back. And that's, that's part of what you have to hold, right. There was no guarantee when I got sent down in 05 that I'd ever see another major league inning. And so you got to hold that. And it's, there's always this thing floating, in our minds as professionals that aren't established that you may never get there again, no matter what, like, like you, yeah. you may even have a great year, but there's some hot prospect that throws harder, but your numbers are better and you might get bypassed. And that's, yeah. that's part of it. So I, I think it's real important to, to feel that grief and let it kind of move you forward. But if you don't process it outright, it can turn into some real toxic behavior and really distract from you 
ultimately getting back because you're getting in your own way. Yeah. Uh, and I've seen that manifested a whole bunch yeah. throughout my years. But I would that would be my number one thing was, hey, grieve it and then see it as an opportunity, really, you know, and be curious. Like I never went down not asking, what do you see? Right. Like, hmm. so if I got sent out or if I had That's good. a pitching coach tell me something, I would never just leave pouting. I would say, what do you see? What, what do you see? tell me? Yeah. What do you see? Like, just give me a snapshot of what do you see? Sorry to interrupt you. Just because that is yeah. such a huge, I don't want to rush past what you just said, because I'm curious, like how many pro players were you around who never asked that question? I'm not sure. I mean, for me, like I was always behind closed, that, that kind of stuff always happens behind closed doors. I would like to think that people would ask that because the only way back is to check those things that they see off the list. Like if you're not doing this or that, you need to know you're not doing this or that to be able to refine it, correct it, build it, yeah. eliminate it, whatever it is. But if you don't know what that is, then how can you ever really be pushing towards something that they're going to like or need or hope that you can become? You know, and so I just thought it, that that's the next logical question for me is, OK, I hear that I'm going out. I may agree with it or not agree with it. That's insignificant in this moment. Tell me what you see uh, that I can do, what adjustment I can make to get back here. And sometimes, like to their credit, they wouldn't have an answer. They would just say, hey, we need another arm. You know, know, like, I don't know. Be better. I don't want, but yeah, exactly. Be better. And then sometimes <laughs> though, the greatest thing about it would be, let's say that happens 70% of the time, because that's really how, how it would. But the 30% was so rich. The 30%, yeah. like taking the risk of asking that question and getting yes. feedback, even if you, if you got, like, there were a couple of times where I got, you don't need to know punk, just get out. Like it's somebody else's turn. Like, like. Yeah. Like angry, <laughs> like, Hey, you know, who, who are you to question our decision? Right. Like you're just, yeah. a, uh, you know, a pawn on the chessboard, right? Like go down there and do your work and come back if we call you and shut up. Right. Like that's that you got that sometimes. And then sometimes you would get be better, you know, like no real answer. And then 30, 30% of the time you would get a real nugget. Like you would get something that could really transform you. And I never wanted to leave without risking that. Right. Like that was, part of my thought process anyway. And I just want everyone to notice that like 70% of the time you got information that may not have been helpful at all or got or even pushback, but you not may not. Get the 30%. It, was, it, it wasn't. <laughs> it was not, not, yeah. not may not. It was not. There's no it was, it was just it, pure it was, it was, And some of it was mean. Some of it was just mean spirited, you know, like <laughs> taking taking me out of context and giving me a tongue lashing for talking back like a grandfather. You know? <laughs> so I've actually got two closer questions. Dan, is there anything you want to, and by the way, all right, I love this. Uh, a few things about you and, I, and then I'll ask if Dan has any last questions and I'll ask my last two questions. One is, uh, I cannot, we, we talked a little bit about this before, but I cannot wait for you to be, to do more sharing, more speaking, yeah. You, you've got a book and it's amazing and people should go out and buy that obviously. And it tells yeah. a lot of your story, but I think there's just so much more. Uh, there's a, there's every time I'm around you, I just very excited about you offering what you have and your experience and the way that you are able to translate your experience into things that are useful for people. So oh, thank, thank you. Thank you for doing that. Oh, in that's that an spirit, actually, so 
Thank you. I, I love it. I just love it, love it, love it. Uh, I've got two 100%. questions in that vein, but Dan, do you have anything you want to ask before we wrap up and, and all right, maybe if we could have you on at some other time, months from now, you know, sure. with all of your discretionary time. Sure. <laughs> so first, all right, before Jason wraps up, I just, I do want to say thank you so much for agreeing to have this conversation. I, it speaks to a lot of the work that we do with the athletes that we work with at a very yeah, deep level, yeah. this idea of being willing to risk and being willing to fail and having a, a space where you get to refine your thoughts and the way you show up to your game. I'm, I'm curious now, and this is more of a future-based question. Maybe I'm stealing one from Jay, but I'm curious, like as you're taking the lessons that you learned in baseball, where do you find, where are you applying your mentality right now in your life? And, and how, how is that? Yeah. Just tell, tell us about that. I'd love to hear about that. Oh yeah. Well, I appreciate that question. I'd say right now, you know, I feel like I've been given a really unique footprint um, here in my own home. I spent a good, spent a lot of time when I retired, you know, I only retired four years ago. So it's still fresh enough to kind of be with me pretty vividly and being able to share that with, uh, I've got a 14 year old boy and I've got two girls, one's at Tennessee, one's going to Vanderbilt and, and uh, get to share just kind of some of those lessons with them and help you know, because most of this stuff, guys, it's it's not baseball stuff, which is why I love what you guys are doing. I think it's much more how do you live a rich life stuff, right? Yeah, how do you yeah. how do you cultivate? Yeah. How do you become a, a a part of the bigger story going on around you? Yeah. And that that to me is pretty special. I, I applaud you guys uh, in your endeavor. But to answer your question, the boys that I'm over at the high school, that's a real rich time for me, getting to impart to them, answer questions for them, be around for them, be available for them. And always with the bent that it's not about them becoming college or professional baseball players, but but how can they be productive young men, productive mm -hmm. citizens that are kind-hearted, hardworking, trustworthy citizens? By the way, all right, thanks for saying that you like our work. Anytime you want to come play in our world, we would, we'll have you. <laughs> we would love to have you come play in our world. All right. All right. Last two questions. One is, okay. so there's people, people listening to this, both inside and outside of sport. What would you want to say to them? What would you want to say to the people who are listening to this, who feel like currently they're at the top of their game and either a, they're experiencing the euphoria of that, or they're kind of experiencing the emptiness of that, but they feel like they're doing well. What would you want to say to them? That's a great question. I would say, try to discipline yourself to not think of it being at the top of your game or a place. Like don't think of it as a placeholder kind of just be a lifelong learner. Like I think that I think that's that would be the message. Um, and if you feel empty in it, then try to go outside your comfort zone to to introduce something new into your world. And if you feel like you're at the top of your game, that's a dangerous place. I would challenge that person because you can get real complacent real quick. And if you're not real hungry for knowledge and whatever endeavor you're trying to pursue or even somewhere else outside that makes you a you know a, a very well-rounded person then you're going to get lonely real quick one and two is you're not going to really be the best that you can be that's the real message the message is you know you've you've never arrived i mean it's a journey that you never you never master you know you only you can play it well but you never really master like that's my my mentality at least i love that you're singing our song that's wonderful yeah. And then the last question, R.A., is the world has forced a lot of people into a pivot, into the, into kind of their version of the minors or their version of having to learn something new sure. in, in the last year especially. And whether that was true or not, a lot of people find themselves in the valley of having to reinvent themselves 
they're not feeling like they're the best of their game. Maybe they were, maybe they never were, but they're in this season of learning something and it's not going well. Uh, what would you say to them? Cause you've, you've been there. What, what would you say to them as a close? Let, let me just share my own experience and maybe they, that will help. When I, when I started to become a knuckleballer, I was horrible. Like I said, my first outing, I gave up 10 runs and it didn't get much better after that. But the thing that helped me uh, was just this compulsion to want to punch the clock, man. I wanted to be stubborn in my craft. I wanted to, without sounding corny, and I think it's probably a saying because it's true, but I just, I didn't want to leave anything out there. Like I want, if I was going to fail at it, I wanted to make sure that I was able to have committed all that I can commit to it. There's a real, I think there's a real dignity to, even when it's not going well for you to punch that clock, like, Wait, like whatever it is, that thing that you do, even if you do it for a moment, like to get up and to find in you the strength to be able to punch it and know in reflection that you did it even when it was hard, that builds a lot of confidence in you. And I know, you know, I have a lot of cohorts and peers that it hasn't been going well for because of the time that we're living in, in particular. And we will often talk about that, just the dignity of waking up and committing yourself to an endeavor that you may or may not end up doing well at, but you're committed and being committed to something that that's, that's good. It's good to be committed. Yeah. In our work, we say, find the work that's worth failing at. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. All right. Th- thank you so much, Dan. Thank you so much. You bring so much to the conversation as well. I appreciate you. And uh, man, whether, so if you're listening to this, whether you're at the peak or you're in the Valley, Mm-hmm. Uh, we hope that this was something valuable for you. All right. I just, yeah. every time I talk to you, I like you more. Uh, now, <laughs> you. I hope you have a great, great rest of your day with your wife and your, your amazing kids. And uh, hopefully we'll get to do this sometime soon. But if not, uh, have a great rest of your day. My pleasure, guys. Thanks. Thank you for listening. For more resources like this, as well as articles and videos by all of our coaches, go to novus.global and click on resources. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. That helps us out a lot. Rate and leave a review. If you didn't like us, just leave us alone. We drop new episodes every week and we don't want you to miss out. If you want to explore hiring a Novus Global Coach or becoming an executive coach at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching, email us at begin at novus.global or click the link in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and remember, dare to go beyond high performance.